With the enactment of the Insolvency and Bankruptcy Code 2016, the IBC, there has been a paradigm shift in the way insolvency of a corporate is being handled. The law provided for only two classes of creditors: one, the operational creditors, and number two, the financial creditors. And the way their rights are ascribed under the code attracted judicial scrutiny. Being an economic legislation where time-bound resolution of insolvency is the major focus, the Supreme Court of India addressed the issues under IBC in a speedy manner. On January 25, 2019, the Honorable Apex Court pronounced a landmark judgment in the case of Swiss Ribbons Private Limited v. Union of India, upholding the constitutional validity of the code. To understand the issues raised in this case and the rationale behind upholding the constitutional validity of various provisions under the code, we have with us Mr. Himanshu Gupta, a lawyer who is currently pursuing his graduate insolvency program at the Indian Institute of Corporate Affairs. Hi, Himanshu. Welcome to Willison. Hi Prakul thank you for having me here so basically if we look at this case the insolvency and bankruptcy code was a fairly newly enacted legislation at the time this case was contested and there was no literally no jurisprudence in existence at the time to interpret the provisions and this case was bound to go at the highest level to be interpreted in such a way so as to uh, basically fortify the intent behind this code and that that's how uh, supreme court upheld this Uh, legislation in its entirety and gave a free hand because it since it's a economic legislation experiments had to be made and supreme court agreed as such that this was the intent of the court and that's how it this decision came to be okay so uh, imanshu uh, what we'll do in our podcast is i'll be uh, listing down the issues and maybe i'll be like getting to know your intention behind that so the ground number 1 and the issue number 1 uh, which is the major focus in this case is the differential treatment of the classes of creditors that is the operational and financial creditors so what is your take on that what how how has the supreme court dealt with this so prakul the thing is that supreme court has relied heavily on the bankruptcy law report committee committee on which this code was based so supreme court observed a lot of differences basically supreme court the issue that was contended was that there is no intelligible differentiate that is in existence so as to differentiate between operational creditors and financial creditors yes. supreme court uh, observed that even if we see from a bird's eye view there are a lot of differences such as minor differences if we see that so, uh, financial creditors are basically banks operational creditors are uh, those which provides goods and services financial creditors are always less in number operational creditors they could be hundreds and thousands and if we some see, see some cases there are uh, almost uh, more than 10000 operational creditors because they are vendors uh, from small vendors to large uh, government agencies and moreover there are diff- there may be differences because there are different payment schedules there are different criteria to be uh, uh, taken when, uh, if there are any disputes and differences keeping of records for example if there are some operational creditors they may not have that many records but financial creditors which are banks they have a lot of everything documented even to the last rupee so that's how supreme court upheld that okay so there are that many differences that are in existence and there is definitely a intelligible differentiate between these two so as to differentiate between them and that too because financial creditors are uh, a class apart in themselves because they are uh, they ha- they are the experts they are engaged in accessing everything fr- from the start of the uh, company because they provide working capital whereas operational creditors provide just goods and services which which are 
procured through the very working capital that is provided by the financial creditors themselves so that's how supreme court upheld that there are a lot of differences and there exists a intelligible difference and there is a difference in in between both the creditors which uh, which was apparent in the code itself and as such that this difference had to be made and this was not an unconstitutional exercise okay so based on this ground uh, the supreme court held that there is no contravention of article 14 the right to equality and all which have been raised in this case uh good so now ground number 2 constitution of the coc so the code does not provide for any any uh, right voting right for the operational creditors in a coc so or to put it in another way the code says uh, that fundamentally only financial creditors can form part of the coc and based on this they raised that raised the constitutional validity of this particular provision providing no scope for operational creditors in a coc so how did supreme court deal with this issue so yes prakul this was very much challenged by the operational uh, on the ground that operational creditors are not provided any voting power but then again supreme court went back to the blrc report and quoting the blrc report itself uh, the supreme court observed that since uh, financial creditors are the there should be uh, because if a firm goes into insolvency if a firm is facing distress or in stress at the time so it has to be uh, what was the intent behind the code it was resolution of the corporate debtor and how uh, it comes to be it happens when there are people who are who have the capability and capability to understand the business or at least uh, the willingness to restructure and supreme court observed that okay there are operational creditors who are small time who may be small time uh, vendors and there are financial creditors who are banks now banks have experts they are engaged uh, with the corporate debtor from the beginning since they provide loans they are already engaged in accessing the viability of operations of the corporate debtor and viability of its projects and its finances and this is something which is not uh, very handy with when it comes to corporate uh, the operational creditors and that's why there is a intelligible differentia moreover operational creditors are such that they are more concerned with the recovery of their money because they 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 have nothing to do with resolution of the corporate debtor they will get out as soon as they they recover a part of their money and or even the full money whereas financial creditors have to be there till the last moment because they have given long term loans and everything is documented and everything on record so they have to go by their, their own established procedures so that's how there is a intelligible uh, there is a basically uh, rational and a very genuine and legitimate rational by not giving them any uh, power to vote however they have been given under section 21 of the code they have been given the uh, right of representation that if tot- uh, their debts exceed 10% of the total debt then they have a uh, right to attend the meeting of the coc but not the right to vote there as well that is in the hands of uh, financial creditors only because financial creditors themselves have teams of experts who are uh, engaged in this field and who have technical capability as well as the willingness of the uh, financial creditors behind them to ensure that uh, the corporate debtor remains a going concern and the fulfillment of the objectives of the code takes place yeah and since the object is also in terms of balancing the interest of all the stakeholders even though coc is comprising of financial creditors alone their and their objective is again to balance interest of all the stakeholders which also take concerns uh, of the operational creditors can also be heard there oh yeah you want to add something yeah. yes sure and that's uh, that's why even the supreme court observed that that payment when it comes to payment operational creditors are given priority 
so uh, in that yeah. case that they the first the operational creditors have to be paid and then the financial creditors will have to be paid so that that uh, their right not to vote is counterbalanced by this uh, act okay. uh that's nice uh, himanshu so now the next ground moving forward to the next ground uh, section 12a uh, withdrawal so there has been uh, a few number of cases where the supreme court had to invoke its powers under article 142 the inherent powers and dispose of the cases of genuine settlements because there was no such provision provided in the court to withdraw a case and subsequent to which the law committee the insolvency uh, law committee had uh, suggested for insertion of section 12a in not may, may not be like the language of 12a but they insisted that there has to be a scope to provide for withdrawal subsequently 12a section has been introduced and regulation 30a has been introduced and the withdrawal has happened and then soon after that a challenge has been made to the constitutional validity of it because in june this has been made effective and in the next year the june 2018 12a has been made effective in january 2019 it has been i mean like, rather immediately it got challenged and january the constitutional validity has been upheld so what happened in this what what happened with the 12a how did supreme court deal with that so prakul basically 12a provides for withdrawal of application uh, when uh, it is admitted in under the code so uh, what is uh, the proceedings under the code are collective in nature and what was the intent behind the enactment uh, insertion of section 12a that it was to be a collect it has to stay a collective proceedings that no one has to be unfairly de- uh, put in a position where he, his uh, problems are not heard or his uh, concerns are not addressed at all so that is why section 12a said that if a withdrawal has to be made it has to be made with the approval of 90% of the voting power of committee of creditors and supreme court also uh, upheld this rationale that even though uh, it was not specifically earlier provided in the code it was uh, within the purview of the court as uh, you already said that supreme court has uh, at, at times provided withdrawal of applications under its power under article 142 of the constitution of india as well as uh, it also referred to the insolvency law committee report where it was observed that even the nclt and nclat were uh, allowing the withdrawals of applications under the, so as to uh, basically remove the company from insolvency and under the fulfillment of objectives of the code itself so supreme court held that okay this is also uh, something which might uh, which is to work in because not every even the uh, infrastructure was clogged at the time if we see a, a, at this so supreme court might have even also taken that into consideration while writing uh, down this judgment and that's how it it, it uh, upheld the constitutional validity of section 12a that it is uh, very much valid and it it withdrawals had to be allowed because it, it's not even harming many people because 90% is substantially all of the creditors so that is something which sort of a cram down that could be allowed so adding to it even though uh, like the moment uh, ibc is triggered since it becomes a judgment sorry uh, proceedings in rem that all the stakeholders are involved so there have been many complexities which has been handled and one such thing is the role of the resolution professional so what is the basic role of the resolution professional has always always been uh, a point of contention and one of the role is to check the eligibility criteria of uh, resolution applicants and 29a is where 
the resolution eligi- the eligibility of a resolution applicant had been vividly criticized saying that the a promoter himself cannot apply so a resolution professional has to check whether a resolution applicant meets 29a or not and now the 29a itself has been challenged so what has been uh, the discussion under 29a so prakul section 29a was challenged in this uh, case on a lot of grounds but in uh, totality what the supreme court held was that this, this section is a see through provision and uh, it has to look upon all the factual as well as legal complexities that involved along, uh, uh, involved uh, that are uh, involved in the uh, resolution applicants provide uh, presenting their resolution plan for a corporate debtor so what is to be done is to look as to whether it it there is no back to back channeling that the company does not again go back to the per parties at fault so it has to be uh, and there are specific provisions in section 29a itself so where uh, some people are uh, disqualified on the basis that uh, if they had already faced insolvency proceedings or they they have violated any resolution plans so supreme court used a very uh, a very good analogy that it short, should not be a case of blind leading the blind so in that case also and if we see uh, our uh, a judgment of the supreme court a few months ago before this judgment was passed in arcelor mittal case the supreme court had observed that it had to take all the persons into account because if we see the amendment ordinance that brought section 29a into the code it stated that persons acting jointly while applying for a resolution plan and when the act came into uh, amendment act was uh, enacted and inserted in the code the it was changed to persons acting jointly or persons acting in concert so it gave a wider very wider ambit because it had to cover all the parties and it had to ensure that uh, there is no uh, basically no drif- uh, frauding or fraudulent activity or no basically window dressing of the identity of any person so as to show that okay this is a different party and uh, not the same party due to whose fault the corporate debtor is facing insolvency and that's uh, that's how the supreme court upheld the constitutional validity of this section so because it was very much in uh, fulfillment of objectives of the court that it had to remain a going concern and if it had to remain a going concern even though had the management not been in fault but it was at it was because at that time they were at helm that it had to be changed so that's why uh, section 29a was upheld to be in within the uh, constitutional structure of the court Uh, apart from these issues uh, the supreme court has also dealt with the role of the resolution professional as an adjudicator so uh, the while apply, while admitting the claims so there was an allegation made that uh, the resolution professional is regarded as a adjudication officer or you can say an adjudicating authority so how did supreme court take that so prakul supreme court uh, ob- uh, supreme court perused the section as well as uh, regulations the corporate insolvency resolution process regulations that were prescribed by ibbi under the court and supreme court upheld that the role of an uh, insolvency professional is not that of uh, an adjudicator it is rather uh, of an administrator that he facilitates the entire insolvency process and what he does is not adjudicate upon the claims he just determines as to whether the claim can be admitted or can uh, or whether it is an admitted or uh, because primary role is to collate the claims first is he has to collect and then he has to collate that whether this claim which has been filed in its form whether it's the in the same form in the books of corporate debtor or not and if 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 it is there at all so 
it's it's not his adjudicating power but rather a facilitator and determinator of the claims and also this can be challenged under provisions of the code and uh, and parties can approach the uh, nclt as well as nclt if their claims are not uh, if their claims are not determined by the resolution professional in accordance with the what they had presented to him and finally also the uh, there was a mention on the appointment of members of nclt and nclat uh, the ground on which there was this is also one of the grounds of appeal so did uh, how, how did the supreme court uh, rule on this so basically supreme court uh, not exactly ruled on it but observed that although at that time when the provision was challenged in an earlier case there were some infirmities because three judicial uh, th- three bureaucratic members outweighed the two judicial members in the appointment committee but in 2017 itself the companies act was amended and uh, after that the composition of the selection committee was also cha- changed so hence supreme court observed that uh, this uh, ha- the amendment in the law has been made so n- nothing for further was uh, remained uh, there remained there to be adjudicated upon so it has already been uh, emphasized upon by the change in law okay so i hope uh, we have covered in uh, in detail the grounds uh, here mr manju so anything for apart from this you wish to add uh, on in regard to this case uh, definitely prakul the supreme court observed in the case itself that the code had made great strides in the uh, insolvency regime as well as trust uh, sector and uh, if we see uh, paragraph 86 of the case where supreme court observes itself that adjudicating authority had disposed of 3300 cases and uh, where claims of almost 120390 crore rupees were dealt with moreover if we see the economic survey of india now uh, of the year 2019 it observes that while the under earlier insolvency regime the average rate of recovery for creditors was 23% now under the current insolvency regime it has increased drastically to 42% which is almost double so we can see that the impact it has been making the economic survey also observed that 50000 crore worth of npas had been standardized so there is a paradigm shift not only in theory but in actuality where the corporate uh, uh, borrowers uh, uh, who are basically promoters of the company are scared that their Uh, companies they they might lose their companies as if we see the recent case of uh, sr steel where the uh, co- uh, promoters lost the, the company to, uh, to the resolution process under the code so if we see now it is leading a change in thinking because not only in theory but also in practicality uh, the time has come that the again ob- observed in a case by the supreme court that the debtors paradise has been lost so now if we see although it is a, still in developmental stage it's it's going to definitely benefit the uh, entire insolvency system and it's going to be if we, if we see the current trend it's going to be great for the banking system and uh, stress is going to definitely come down okay uh, so i take this as your concluding remarks as well mr manshu so one thing is certain that the both the legislature and the executive have established certainty in the way insolvency is going to be addressed so it is definitely a positive sign at least for the industry to know that there is no uncertainty as to how their 
ट्रांजेक्शन आर गोइंग टू बी डेल्ट विथ द मोमेंट इन्सॉल्वेंसी स्ट्रिगर्ड और वॉट लैपन टू कंपनी द मोमेंट इन्सॉल्वेंसी स्ट्रिगर्ड सर्टनिटी इज बींग एस्टाब्लिश सो दिस इज डेफिनेटली अ पॉजिटिव साइन फॉर एन इकोनॉमिक रिफॉर्म एंड इकोनॉमिक रिफॉर्मेशन इन द कंट्री सो विद दिस वी फिनिश आर पॉडकास्ट विल बी डीलिंग विद मोर सुप्रीम कोर्ट जजमेंट्स वेर इन मिस्टर हिमांशु विल बी हाईलाइटिंग द वेरियस इश्यूज एंड फंडामेंटल बेसिस ऑन विच सच इश्यूज हैज बीन रेस्ड इन आर कमिंग एपिसोड्स थैंक यू सो मच Stay tuned to Wheelizen by subscribing to our podcast.